Our scripture this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 20, selected verses. Then God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. For six days you shall labor and do all your work. Honor your father and your mother so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or male or female slave or ox or donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When all the people witnessed the thunder and the lightning, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, they were afraid and trembled and stood at a distance and said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we will die. Moses said to the people, do not be afraid for God has come only to test you and to put the fear of him upon you so that you do not sin. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, thank you, Sarah, for that reading. It was uh, just two weeks ago that Reverend Bell and I, uh, after the Sunday service, went to go see a friend of ours, Helen Chilton. She was on her deathbed, but she requested that we visit, and so we went and we shared prayer and stories. We listened and we spoke and we laughed. What was clear, I think, very much so to both of us is that both her humor and her deep Christian faith were intact. And so it was on Thursday in the middle of the night that we received the word that Helen took her last breath. And so we remember her, and I am this morning, those who have been kind to me and to so many others. And uh, even in, in being in her room, I was reminded that as she was looking out to, up from her bed to this wall, it was really a rainbow, this sea of cards that had been sent from Peachtree. I have believed and I have come to know that this is a community that cares. This is a community that loves one another deeply. And so, Scott, and to the rest of the elders and my good friends, for the gift of the robe, I am grateful. I am truly, deeply, and profoundly grateful to be at a church like Peachtree that loves one another and that cares, knowing that life is not always easy, and yet we continue to speak graciously to one another. We continue to remind one another of the hope that we cling to until our very last breath. And so, Dr. Longbonds, thank you for your leadership and your friendship. It means so much to me. And with every fiber of who I am, I am grateful to be a minister at this place. And so, I am so thankful. Will you please join with me in prayer? 
God who knows and cares for all of us. In this hour and this very moment, quiet our minds, still our very being, and then stir our hearts that we might listen to your words. Open our ears, we pray, so that we might do your good work within your creation. May these words in the meditations of all our hearts bring honor and glory to you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't have to tell you. You already know it to be frighteningly true. With every passing hour, with every precise tick of the second hand, moment by moment, you are being studied, seduced, and sold on the idea that you don't have something that you need. Most of the time, it's not really a need. It's a desire that's being carefully cultivated by a complex web of market analysis, social pressure, and predictive algorithms. All of it hinges on the notion of scarcity. Advertising banks on the simple premise that you are incomplete. You don't have enough of whatever it is that you think you need. And so we are led down all-consuming paths, trying to obtain, trying to make up for our lack, trying to compensate for our deficiencies. It's nothing new, and I think we all recognize it when we have the eyes to see it. It's what happens when a person buys the new luxury car only to find that the passenger seat isn't filled by the beautiful person that the commercial seemed to promise. It's a new house that was sold because of the smell of fresh cookies wafting through the air. It entices us to imagine that life could always be like this. All we have to do is sign on the dotted line. But it's not just with luxury and big-ticket items. It's how people end up buying Rice Krispies, not because they especially like them, but because the commercial seems to tell us that all families who eat them will be happy and will get along at the breakfast table. And so the thinking goes, maybe, just maybe, if I'd buy this cereal, my family will laugh and be put together because all families who eat Rice Krispies are like that. But what happens when it doesn't work like the commercial seemed to imply? What happens when we still somehow feel incomplete what happens when the picture we'd painted in our heads doesn't materialize on the canvas of our lives? What can we do when we feel like we don't have enough? See, the terrifying logic of scarcity often leads us to keep searching, trying to make ourselves whole by scurrying after the next sparkling thing. 
Just in case we think this is simply a modern-day anomaly, let me remind you that the world has always been tempted to focus on what we don't have instead of what we do have. As Scripture relays it, this is one of the first defining stories of humanity. The loaded prose of the Garden of Eden recounts Adam and Eve obsessing over the one thing they couldn't have instead of enjoying all of the beauty and the plenty that surrounded them. It's a telling narrative that captures the toxic trajectory of feeding the impulse that whispers, if you'd only taste this, if you'd only take a bite from the one thing you don't have, you'll be more whole than you are now. In the garden of life, we fall again and again, to the lie and the logic of scarcity. The theologian Sam Wells has written that the contrast to the assumption that to scarcity is that God gives enough, everything that His people need. He gives them everything they need in the past. This is heritage and everything they could possibly imagine in the future. This is destiny. The question that every person must grapple with in his or her own way is whether or not we actually believe that God's heritage and destiny will be enough. In Jewish tradition, there is a story taken from the Babylonian Talmud about Moses going up into the heavens and finding the Holy One sitting before a Torah scroll and, and crowning certain of the letters with the pin strokes with, that would adorn these particular letters in every Torah for all time. In Jewish tradition, there is something timeless and enduring about God's divine words given to humanity. In the history of Israel, one of the most important instances of God giving everything that the people need occurs in God giving Moses the law and the Ten Commandments. My great fear about talking about the Ten Commandments is that we might quickly assume that we know the list. After all, we've seen these words printed on posters in Sunday school debated in front of courthouses and in the public square, and printed on t-shirts, ties, and coffee mugs. But I beg you to please see this as more than God's abridged version of rules and rigid regulations. I submit to you that the Ten Commandments are so much more. Throughout Scripture, God is often depicted as longing to be in relationship with humanity. Going further, the relationship between God and the people of Israel is often described as a marriage. A marriage because it's to be understood as a relationship of mutual admiration, faithfulness, and reciprocity. Like all healthy marriages, the idea isn't one-sided investment, but mutual involvement. I recently heard it said that there are three questions that can haunt a marriage. First, am I too much for you? Second, am I enough for you? And third, 
are we enough together? In the marriage between God and the people of Israel, the Ten Commandments are asking each of them in their own way, am I enough for you? The commandments are God's way of providing an avenue for being in a healthy, lasting relationship. For a people who had been enslaved and oppressed, the commandments are imagining how the people of God can actually be free when they finally enter into the promised land. Whereas the logic of scarcity, of of believing there isn't enough, leads to enslavement. The logic of God's provision, of, of believing that God actually supplies what we really need, this is what leads to freedom. Each and every commandment is trying to prepare and prime the people for the many choices that will await them on the other side of the Jordan River. Time and again, the people will have to decide which path they will walk. Will the people of God learn that the Exodus journey had been teaching them through the parting seas and the manna and the wilderness? Will they learn from this lesson? Will Israel cling to the truth that God will make a way and that God's way will always be enough? Or will they walk into the snares of scarcity, being baited to look elsewhere for practical and spiritual satisfaction. I would challenge you this morning to think about how each of the commandments is really God's asking the question again and again, am I enough for you? Although we could start anywhere with this question, the question is probably the clearest in processing the commandment, you shall not steal. I wonder What drives people to take what isn't theirs? Perhaps it's the insidious anxiety that tells us the only way that I'll ever have enough is if I take from someone else. It was Martin Luther who described the thief as the one who fundamentally says, there isn't enough for you and for me, so I've got to have yours in order to survive. To steal is the fundamental action that comes from the belief that God won't provide for God's people. Duke Old Testament scholar Carol Myers observes that many understandings of this passage fail to account for the circumstances of ancient life. She writes of the death problems caused by the theft of certain kinds of property, agricultural tools, or even jars of food in a society in which most people lived at the subsistence level. And she goes on to detail how theft could rupture the fabric of family and community life just as could murder or adultery. I think we can also point out that the flip side of stealing is our individual or collective compulsion to hoard to keep an overabundance for ourselves. In doing so, we starve local and global economies through our selfish stockpiles. One of the questions that has kept coming to mind in my teaching the Wednesday evening class on joy is whether or not our joys result in the sufferings of others. My hunch is that answering this question will go as deep as you allow it to go. 
And suffice to say, we worry about having enough in our wrongful taking and in our wrongful keeping. Although we are still very much facing the suffering, grief, and reality of COVID, we need only to remember the panic of not too many weeks ago that sent us in search of lifetime supplies of toilet paper. Yes, we know the frenzy, even the hysteria that can accompany the question, will we have enough? It's the same question and truth being considered in the commandments that decry adultery and coveting what belongs to your neighbor. Our jealousy for what others have, that which we don't have, can here again divert our attention away from what is good and life-sustaining right in front of our eyes. When we wring our hands over what our neighbor has, the dangerous extension occurs when we use these same wringing hands to reach for what isn't ours. It's the same story as the Garden of Eden, simply told with different objects of desire. The apple of our eye can control our reach, our longings, and our downfall. And in the same way, the commandment not to commit adultery isn't a prudish and archaic biblical restraint. It's a divine word to find beauty and contentment in the love that is already yours. This commandment is pleading with us to realize that you don't need to step out on your promises of faithfulness in order to find a love that is satisfying. The commandment is asking and answering the question, have you really exhausted all the wonders that can be in another person before you've decided that someone else is nicer. Again, let, me, let us remember that the people of Israel throughout Scripture are often accused of committing adultery, of break, breaking their pledged fidelity to God by chasing after other gods and idols of their own wanting and making. And so, too, this is how we can understand the commandments about idolatry and not serving other gods. Standing on the edge of the promised land, Israel will have to decide again and again if God will be enough. Will they, and will we for that matter, put other things ahead of God? The temptation for Israel and for us is to say that God is good, but surely there's something else that we can search for supplement or add to the mix that will make our lives better or more inspiring. Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann writes, quote, We have always lived in a world of options, alternative choices, and competing appeals. It does us no good to pretend that there are not other offers of joy and security, end quote. What we find in these words from Exodus is a plea to stop searching for God in all the places, possessions, and priorities that won't ultimately satisfy our deepest longings. The mirages just don't last. God is enough. You don't need to buy or build something else to worship or to pledge your allegiance to. This path will only lead to infinite disillusion 
and melancholy. In the words of Charles Matthews, our longings can translate into a bad consumption of the world in which we will always want more, and when we do not get it, we seek satisfaction in bad ends, faulty goods, and false gods. We end in idolatry. I'm going to keep re-emphasizing the point. God is asking Israel, am I enough for you? Let's also consider the commandment, you shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God. This is a commandment that is often under, misunderstood in my view. Now, as a child, I always thought this commandment was a rule about not using God's name as a curse word, as a blurted expression when you stub your toe or hit your thumb with a hammer. But there is so much more at stake here. The Hebrew verb that's used in this commandment could be literally translated as carry, bear, or wear. Overly translated, we could read this commandment as don't carry, bear, wear, or take God's name with you in vain or in the wrong way. Additionally, it's important to note that in ancient cultures, a name was always a combination of two things. First, intrinsic character, and second, external reputation. Throughout the book of Exodus, it's always the assumption that when we're talking about God's name, that we're also talking about who God is and how other people will come to recognize God as a result of our actions. I'm convinced that this is much more than an injunction on your speech. This commandment is questioning how you're carrying or wearing the name of God with an explicit understanding that other people will come to know God based on how you demonstrate the character of God in your life. For Israel and for us, can others look at the way we wear the name of God in such a way that they could realize that God actually is enough? Or do we wear God as another collected accessory, an optional attachment, something that we can put on or, or take off as the occasion suits us? Exodus reminds us that the world is always watching to see what God is like through the actions of God's people. Hopefully, you're getting the deeper point in all of these commandments. The point about not lying or bearing false witness isn't a rule for the sake of another rule. It's telling us to let God's simple truth be enough. We don't have to stretch or embellish it in order to make life whole. We're told not to murder because God has created every single human being as a companion. Killing others is an act of ingratitude. Even Sabbath-keeping is a reminder that what you haven't done in six days, you're probably not going to complete in seven. For many of us, time is our most dangerous idol and God. We think that if we just had another day, another hour to work, maybe then we'd feel complete and right with the world. The Sabbath rest instructs our heart mind and strength, reminding us that work, labor, and human resources are good, but not divine. 
On this point, Walter Brueggemann writes, Sabbath concerns the periodic, disciplined, regular disengagement from the systems of productivity whereby the world uses people up to exhaustion. He then concludes, Sabbath practice is not to be added on to everything else, but requires the intentional breaking of requirements that seem almost ordained in our busy life, end quote. In simple terms, this commandment is teaching that we make a mockery of God when we worship our work. We're back to the notion of idolatry whenever we distort what is actually good by making time the object of our ultimate devotion and loyalty. From beginning to end, the commandments are each in their own way serving as a guide for living and loving They were intended as as signposts for Israel, showing her how to live in the promised land so that she doesn't end up in another enslaved or oppressive reality. The Ten Commandments aren't intended to be a, a legalistic bore. We aren't to envision angelic accountants and actuaries scribbling down all your infractions in order to meter out punishment when all is said and done. But more sincerely, Every time you cross one of these lines, you need to look in the mirror and figure out how to make yourself accountable to God and someone else because of the insidious power of temptation. Both then and now, these words are meant to be written on our hearts so that the people of God might live from the abundant provision of God instead of from the bottomless well of scarcity. And when these guidelines are taken to heart, we'll keep acting with faithfulness. We'll live from a love that sustains instead of from a fear of punishment that robs us of joy. These commands are not to be seen as a muzzle or or a leash, but instead as a gift as we help make our way through life. These words are offering a vision of divine and human solidarity and possibility. My great fear is that many Christians have forgotten that the goal of these commandments was always to guide our hearts and our actions. Here's the truth. I don't have to tell you that the world will keep selling you on the idea that you don't have enough of whatever it is that you think that you need. What I have to tell you is that God is, at the heart of it all, still asking the same question, am I enough for you?